When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, brother? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Limited sleep. But other than <laughs> that, I'm doing pretty well. So uh, can I assume that you have not partaken in Barbieheimer over this weekend? Barbieheimer? Is that what they're calling the combination of Oppenheimer and Barbie? That's correct. <laughs> I have not partaken. I've actually haven't seen a movie in theaters in like five years or so, six years. Damn. <laughs> Maybe less than that. Basically, once I met Allison, we haven't we had we have never seen a film together um, in in theaters. That is, she actually well, you, has. A you fear. and I have seen a movie together more recently than that. So it's got to yeah. When didn't we see movie? didn't we see 1918 together? Or am I inventing that in my brain? No, I've never seen 1918. You're inventing that. Mm, okay, never mind. Did we see Did we see Dunkirk? Yes, that's the one. Hmm. That's the I one. I think we saw Dunkirk together. I think we saw Dunkirk together, yeah. But I think Dunkirk came out before we met, or before me and Al met. Really? Huh. Oh, jeez. All right. Man, it's been a while. When did, when did that fucking movie come out? Dun- Off to a shady start. Dunkirk. <laughs> right? When did this Let's come find out? out. Dunkirk 2017. Film. We met in 2018. So, oh shit. Damn, time flies, dude. Time really does fly. Yeah, so I do remember seeing that in theaters. Mm-hmm. I guess it was with you and mm-hmm. I want to say my friend Mike was there too, but Yep, yeah, he was. Mm-hmm. Oh shit. Wow. Yeah, I do remember that. How about that? Memories I never knew existed. But shit, you're right. That is like five years ago. <laughs> so uh, that may have been the last film that you've seen. Uh, that, that probably, I, uh, I think, I really think that was because before <laughs> that, I saw um, what other fucking movies have I seen in theater? I remember seeing The Post. Jesus Christ, right? The Post, the movie with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. Yeah, I, I do remember that film. I didn't go see that in the theaters, but I saw it afterwards on like Amazon or whatever. It was a date. I did not want to see it in theaters. Believe me, I wanted to see the disaster artist, the one that was making fun of <laughs> yeah, their own. And, that's that's and the film that I went to see. Uh, the Post, by the way, also 2017, as I'm seeing here. <laughs> so yeah, it's been like five years. Uh, that was since a big movie. movie. That was a big movie year in 2017. And then I then I saw the the Star Wars, the second one of the new trilogy, whatever that one was called. The one with Luke when Luke drinks the weird milk. Um, Second sequel. The new, is it? I don't, I don't even remember what the name original. of it. It was. Right, is it Rise of Skywalkers? It was The Last Jedi, and that was also 2017. 
at the very end okay. of 2017. 2000, so 2017, I saw many movies, and then after that, I have not <laughs> just seen stopped a movie watching movies <laughs> in theaters yeah. for for five years. And you know, the reason is, is, is you know, I actually do like seeing films in theaters. Sometimes I'm not the biggest movie goer, but I I honestly prefer to watch a movie in my home where I can like take a piss if I need to and not miss the fucking movie you know what i mean that was one of the best parts of uh the coronavirus lockdowns was that all those movies started coming out like direct to your streaming platforms i was like this is fantastic yeah so i mean that's my biggest fear because i drink a bunch of water and um you know if you take a piss you miss like the plot <laughs> yeah i fucking yeah, no missed way. um i've missed i think i missed um the like a key part in the departed i remember and, and uh whatever so to i digress um it's been it's been a while and um you know honestly we should have probably looked at this in advance and said oh look a christopher nolan movie about nuclear weapons is coming out maybe we should match the the episode schedule with the movie so we can like do an episode on the manhattan <laughs> project or something yeah. or the bombing of japan or the nuclear bombing on Japan, which we've had done episodes on before, would have been a great time to time that out. But yeah, <laughs> I guess we don't look at movie schedules too much. Um, we're not that smart. <laughs> we're, we're not We're not that smart. And honestly, I'm just not prepared to do, I guess neither of us are really prepared to do a podcast on it. But um, yeah, I haven't seen it yet. But I do want to see the Oppenheimer. I, I, I do kind of want to see Barbie as well. It was fantastic. I actually did see Barbie. I saw it last night. Um, I was actually, you know, came in with very low expectations and I was very entertained. Um, and, uh, I, uh, want to see Oppenheimer, but it is a three hour film and I don't think my fiance would sit through it. So <laughs> three hour films in theaters intense. Do they have a like interlude period? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think they do. It's not the grindhouse film days, right? Where they have no. like built-in interludes well maybe one day um you know the reason going back the reason why i'm tired is just because i have a newborn right and <laughs> he doesn't enjoy sleeping all the time so i don't get too much sleep nowadays so excuse me if at points today i sound like i just had tea with bill cosby um I'll do my best, but I know Danny, you're the one who's really directing this episode and, and leading the discussion today. So, um, we're continuing our, not going to use the word series cause it's not a series. Uh, we're continuing our long term discussion on different aspects of the lead up of the world war two. And, right. um, I think our last episode really just talked about the borders after world war one, essentially how the map of Europe just changed, you know, these new States just popped up out of nowhere. Like what the fuck? Czechoslovakia, Poland. What are these what things? Are these like, things? There's no, yeah. there's no precedent. <laughs> like Poland, like what the hell is Poland? There was, it was a, the Polish Commonwealth before with Lithuania. Why is there a Polish state? Why are the, the Slovaks and the Czechs combining together into one state? What? Well, this is weird. What happened why to Hungary? Yugos <laughs> what happened to Hungary? What? Why is? What the fuck is Yugoslavia? Like what? Right. All this. What? What is this shit? Um, basically, you know, all these borders changed. New countries were added. Um, you know, victorious countries 
we're we're adding territory from losing countries and essential powers empires were just completely divided up um and then you know that's just on the on the on the losing side the russian empire implodes um it's so they lose territory um so it's a big shit fest in terms of just um you know people you know people who were formerly in um you know um what's the term a uh prisoner of of nations or Mm -hmm. um, prisoner of ethnic groups why am i forgetting the term but basically new uh ethnic prisoners were created in these new states that they were the minority in. so it was a it was a difficult situation. So um, I guess today we're going to follow this up and, and talk a little bit about Weimar Republic because I know you have some things to say about it. And I, and I know that you want to talk briefly about like hyperinflation there, which we did an entire episode on probably about That's two right. years ago, two, three years ago, where we go more into detail about that. But you were a German history major in college, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I studied uh, German history uh, among other related German studies topics, and uh, you know this this particular period of of time between the two wars uh, was of great interest to me, um, mostly because of the art that came out of it, because I thought it was fantastic. But um, there's just a lot of rich stuff that comes out of a very brief, you know, quiet period between uh, the two great wars, and and I say quiet kind of like in air quotes because it really there's a lot of shit going on. It wasn't quiet at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess where I want to start from here is just like a quick little discussion. Like, what do you think of when you hear Weimar Republic? What are like the, the what's the word association there? You know, I think, you know, the number one image that pops in my head is that guy with a wheelbarrow full of money due, due <laughs> yeah. to the hyperinflation. That's that's the first thing that I think of. For sure. Um, you know, another thing I think of is that, you know, I'll read like some some really right wing stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way they depict the Weimar Republic is basically, oh, it was, it was just social degeneracy. You know, there was, you know, there was uh, genital mutilation. There was there was uh, all this like social uh, regression, um, you know, there was that was aimed at you know, traditional society. And, you know, if, if you if you go into like the more uh, conspiratorial anti-Semitic <laughs> <laughs> a rabbit hole of that it's like it was jewish criminals who were running this from the underground and, mm-hmm. and with their union with the bankers who were trying to ruin german society so you know you'll you'll get that aspect of that and you know like that's the reason why hitler rose um in response to this this uh social degeneration and you know i think that that theory doesn't really really work out because i mean first of all hitler wasn't like some weird like prudish dude you know what i mean like he wasn't right. pat robinson or something um he was in some atheist he was you know he was an atheist um but i digress but yeah i mean those are kind of different images that pop in my head but i mean really just the the uh social the really the economic decay is the first thing that pops in my head and just the people living in destitution mm-hmm. who are now turning to Really turning to, you know, the two worst people on earth, the two worst factions on the planet at the time, fascists and communists. So, and they do that out of desperate, out of desperation. But, um, I mean, what is, what is, you know, from your, 
studies and, and, um, you know, from, from, I guess from your experience, just looking into this, like what's your, what's your general take on the Weimar Republic? Right. Well, I mean, I think the most common associations that I hear or read about when I, when I read about Weimar Republic fall into two main categories. Uh, and you touched on one of them, which is the inflation bit. That one's super easy because it was just so ridiculous. Um, but I also hear a lot about like it being a failed government. That's also a very common thing, right? Here's, you know, here's a government that failed. Uh, and epically so, because the thing that came after it is fucking the third Reich. Right. So fortunately though, like, like we mentioned, I, I did happen to study this topic in college and, 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 you know, I've come to learn that, that the Weimar Republic was much more nuanced and interesting than, than, you know, kind of bucketing it into two, those two categories. And, and I think primarily like reducing the, this interwar period in, in the Weimar Republic to just like a, like a brief case study on like how not to government. Uh, I think, I think that's just like missing out on some critical, uh, and important issues. And, and especially this is relevant because we've been talking about the causes of world war two and pretty much everyone has the, the idea that, you know, the, the things that were happening in the Weimar Republic were, you know, part and parcel with why Hitler rose, which, you know, we'll talk about it. <laughs> um, so, Today, I figured I wanted to have a look at a few specific topics about the interwar period in Germany um, and, and maybe even offer some contrasting insights about the Weimar Republic that I think could help us better understand some of the like root causes of World War II. I mean, from my understanding of the Weimar, it was it was like liberal with a capital with a lowercase L, not a capital L, meaning like right. liberal in the sense of like. Yeah, this is going to be a country that's going to have like private property, like respect private property and all that, and mm-hmm. um, you know have elections, and you know we're out with uh, with the authoritarian, um, you know Kaiser, um, you know we're we're kind of throwing out the old you know Prussian archaic models and and uh, moving on and, and becoming a liberal democratic country that mirrors the nations in the West. Hundred percent, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and we'll definitely get into that. Um, I I think where where I really want to start though is the uh, the Treaty of Versailles because I feel like that one's like a hot topic. A, a lot of people who at least just have a cursory understanding of the interwar period would probably understand that the Treaty of Versailles was like bad for the Germans and maybe caused Hitler, right? I think that's like the 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 easy way uh, to describe what's going on here. But I think when 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 we're talking about the causes for World War II, you know, this tends to you know jump to mind. Um, the idea here is that the Treaty uh, of Versailles was so harsh against the Germans that it kept them poor. It was part of the causes, or at least the exacerbation of you know the hyperinflation. It isolated them from trade and and geopolitics and just generally like humiliated the German people, right? It was like their great humiliation um, after already being humiliated from losing the war. And all that is true, like to a certain extent, but it's also not like entirely true. And, and I think that a lot of that theory is, is there's like nuance that we can, that we can look into. So let me explain a bit. So like we discussed in our last episode, on the post-war borders, we already know that the treaty limited uh, the Germans' military size 
Uh, it demilitarized the Rhineland. Uh, it demanded huge reparations. Uh, and it also forced Germany to give up its territories and its colonial possessions. But what's interesting, and I kind of touched on this in the last episode a bit, and I want to go a bit deeper today, is that the exact degree of the, the harshness, I think, of the Treaty of Versailles is, is debatable uh, when you compare it to other treaties from before and, and during this period. So the one that I brought up last time, and I'll, and I'll go into it in a bit more detail today, uh, the, the Treaty of Versailles was, I think, arguably less severe than the Treaty of Trianon. Uh, which was also after World War One, and that treaty dismantled the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, and it stripped Hungary of about seventy percent of its territory and about sixty-five percent of its pre-war population. So, you know, talk about taking a huge axe to this particular country in general. Yeah, well, that that's that's the whole thing with like national determination, and that was under, right. that was the guise of just completely dismantling it because. Um, you know, the Austria-Hungary was called the prisoner of nations. I think it was prisoner of nations, I think is the correct vernacular of what it was called. Mm-hmm. I was using this term so uh, liberally last time. But yeah, prisoner of nations. Um, you know, they were like, oh, well, there's all these different ethnic groups here and they all speak different languages. So right. obviously we should just chop this place up in mm-hmm. ways that they have their own states. But actually it doesn't really work because the new states that we're creating also have a bunch of different ethnic groups and we're just (laughs) trading majorities. So now just new minorities are becoming majorities and all this stuff. And there's new plurality factions and all we're doing is just shuffling up the power and angering people. That's really kind of what happens. But um, in terms of that's, that's Austria, Hungary. Right. Well, I mean, if if you look at it from the, from the frame, like if you remove the people for a moment and you just think of them as states, right. There was a yeah. large Austro-Hungarian empire with a large territory and a large population, regardless of the makeup of it. And there was a large German empire, you know, and after everything was said and done, you still have a relatively large German empire, uh, German state and a very little tiny Hungarian state and a bunch of little micro extra states, right, that have, you know, different makeups. But when you, when you look at it from that perspective... You know, if you just look at like some of France's proposals, you know, if they had their way, there wouldn't have been a Germany as we know it at all, right? Like it, it wouldn't, it, it certainly wouldn't have maintained its its territory as it did, and it and it definitely wouldn't have left. It wouldn't have been left with the largest population in Europe at the time. What was that number like? Sixty million or something like that. Uh, yeah, sixty million as opposed to France that had forty million people. So exactly, you know, Germany is still significantly larger in population right. in, it, in, uh, it in could have been much worse. Right. So like yeah. when you compare the, the, the treaty of Versailles here to the treaty of Trianon, where Germany is only losing 8% of its land and 10% of its pre-war population. If you look at it from that frame of reference, Germany actually lucked out quite a bit in terms of like the severeness or the harshness of it. And then I think another well, relevant, go ahead. Oh, I mean that's that's what that's what was referred to as the German problem. The German problem mm-hmm. was never solved after World War One because yeah, they had to pay all these concessions. Yeah, they lost territory. Yeah, there were Germans that were now, you know, most of the Germans that were um separate the Germans that were separated from the from the Reich, those were Germans from Austria Hungary. 
for the most part. Um, I think all in all, I think how many Germans were separated from, I forget the exact number of like actual Germans who were in the German empire that were separated, but, um, so you know, three those million or something like, like that, that ended yeah, up in Czechoslovakia. Prussia. Yeah. And Czech, well, most of the Czech Germans were, were from Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, the Polish Germans, the Germans in Poland were from, from Prussia, mm-hmm. but, um, we can talk about that on another episode. Um, right. So I think another relevant comparison here, if we're, if we're talking about like how bad was this Treaty of Versailles, would be to the, and I'm going to butcher this, Brest-Litovsk, the treaty of that. <laughs> uh, and that happened during the war, like before it ended. And that's where the uh, the, the Russian Empire, when that collapsed, uh, they had to take a shit deal with the Central Powers, specifically with Germany, with the German Empire. And I think relative to the absolutely massive size of the Russian empire at the time. They did lose some, some territory, but the overall percentage of the land that it lost was low. But if you think of it in absolute terms, meaning like square kilometers, it lost over 150,000 square kilometers. And it wasn't just like a bunch of, you know, Siberian tundra. It was like heavily populated and industrialized regions. Now, it, they also had to pay 6 billion marks in reparations to the central powers, which when you compare that with Germany's 130 billion marks, that looks really, really small. Um, but if you consider that the land that the Russian empire lost was heavily populated and also the epicenter of their industry, the overall real cost in terms of like, you know, G- GNP was much worse than what Germany lost in the Treaty of Versailles. Like as an example, when um, when when uh, the French occupied the Ruhr, the industrial area, you know, uh, on the border, that was for a period of, uh, was pursu- proposed for a period of 15 years, as opposed to the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was like, you lose this forever, forever and ever. <laughs> but I mean, generally speaking, right? The Germans had set up a pretty raw deal with the Soviets and or, or with the, the soon-to-be Soviets here. And in terms of what t- types of territory that they lost and the potential of production that, that they could have had if they had retained this land is incalculable and and extremely high. So... It's also important to note that that the the reparations that that were on Germany, you know, the 130 billion marks, um, they weren't going to pay that all anyway. The the Allies were expecting about a third of that. They knew that number was always a stretch goal. And if you look at how that played out, you know, in the years to come, it, it kept getting reduced and elongated and things like that. So they never ended up paying paying all of the all of that money anyway. So. While the Treaty of Versailles did impose some significant demands on Germany, I think it wasn't overly harsh uh, compared to the historical standards. And and you can even look at some of the the um, the treaties that came before it, uh, like uh, uh, the ones between Germany and France uh, that lost Alsace-Lorraine, as an example. Um, and when you start looking at it from that frame of reference, this particular treaty was kind of par for the course it was bad well but it was what was normal what was un, what was unprecedented was the was the was the war guilt yeah 
So that Germany basically was like, yeah, they, they were assigned complete responsibility for the war. That was what, what was really unprecedented, unprecedented about the peace treaty. Sure. And, and guilt is a real thing that plays into, you know, uh, the rise of the Nazi party for sure. Like getting rid of that guilt. However, in, in real terms in like on the ground, like regular Joe Schmoes in Germany, you know, yeah, it sucks. But what really makes a difference to them is, you know, their production capability, their ability to feed themselves, the ability to maintain a job, you know, like those are the things that matter. And in terms of like relative to other treaties, Treaty of Versailles wasn't wasn't particularly special in those regards, you know. So in that respect, it's kind of hard to just say, oh, the Treaty of Versailles was so bad that it caused the Second World War all by itself, you know. And I think that's kind of the nuance that I wanted to bring up there. And it, it, it deflates the idea a little bit. Especially yeah, I if, agree. if you, I agree you with know. that. I think I think it is a lazy way to look at it. I, you know, it, it's it, it's easy to be like, well. World War II happened because of the unfair treaty of Versailles. Well, that's part of it. That that's part of like the larger picture of, of why World War II happened or how it happened. And yeah, I think you're correct to say the outcome of World War One directly led to the to the origins of World War Two. But just to say it's it was all because of this treaty, I think it's 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 simplifying of an extremely complicated topic. Um, so I, I, I agree with that. There's, there's, um, you know, there is part of it, but you know, even when we talk about the hyperinflation in, in, um, in Germany, a lot of people blame hyperinflation completely on just the reparations that were issued. Um, and that's not necessarily true. That's not really, that's not really (laughs) the case. The hyperinflation, though it did not help a lot of the hyperinflation in Germany was caused by just the social spending that was going on. I'd uh, and I will argue soon that the pieces of the puzzle for hyperinflation was already there even before the war was lost. So yeah, they had been know. they had been they had uh, their central bank had been had basically been printing out banknotes during the war to finance the war in the first place. So it's that's like, right. It was it was like a, a ticking. Had nothing time to do with the Treaty of Versailles, right? That shit was going to happen one way or another. In fact, yeah. almost every country after World War One, with the exception of the United States, experienced some level of hyperinflation, right? Or just inflation in general, right? Uh, because there was such, such a lack, you know? There was, there was not enough shit to go around, not enough product to go around, just so much was lost in general. So the, the idea that this Treaty of Versailles thing, that the, the reparations thereof were somehow, you know, causing hyperinflation, that's, that's, not, that's not entirely true. And yeah. and more to the point, when you look at how everything else plays out in this interwar period, you know, all of the real restrictions, the things that like are particularly heinous that could have held Germany down, a lot of the worst parts of the Treaty of Versailles gets ignored by Germany or they, they just find ways around it uh, and and actually turn around quite well. And, and I want to talk about how Germany cheated some of these restrictions um, because it's really fascinating. Um, so... You know, uh, some of the parts of the, the Treaty of Versailles put heavy restrictions on the German industry, right? Especially the German industries around or adjacent to war-related materials, right? Um, and the, you know, there's an obvious reason for these restrictions, right? Don't let the Jerry's, you know, rearm and there won't be another war, right? But 
what what this worked out to be is only 30 to 33% of companies in Germany were allowed to produce war materials of any kind. And the problem with this was, is that the Treaty of Versailles definition of, of what war materials was, was really broad, like extremely broad. And it was kind of a big deal because the majority of the German economy was at the time centered around this military industrial complex. Like we were saying, you know, the, the central banks and, and the, the government itself was printing so much money and just like the entire economy ran around the war almost entirely, like no diversity whatsoever. And so the fact that you have to now decrease the entire, you know, the what amounts to basically the entire economy down to 33% is a huge hit, right? Huge hit to the economy. And out of those 33% of companies, uh, that were allowed to produce war materials, only 13 of them were specifically allowed to produce weapons and ammunition. Again, for obvious reasons, right? Also, Germany was no longer able to export any weapons or ammunition of any kind anymore. And this also had a really big impact on the economy because even before World War I, uh, a big part of the arms industries in Germany their revenue came from exporting weapons to foreign markets during peacetime. So, you know, it's not even like they can't even make the weapons and be like, oh no, we don't need them. We're not stockpiling this shit. We're selling it to fucking the Netherlands. No, that was off the table. So it didn't leave a lot of industries with a whole lot of options. And remember what I said about the definition of, of quote, war materials being too broad? Well, a large amount of the German heavy industry and chemical industries were obviously involved during the war in producing war materials. But in peacetime, they couldn't just switch back to regular non-war shit, right? Like those materials that they were producing were too close to war materials and therefore were considered war materials, right? So like think out how like certain chemicals, as an example, that can be used for pesticides to, you know, help grow crops and shit, they're also the same chemicals, coincidentally, that are used to make bombs. So now we're saying that only thir the, this 30% rule, it means that a lot of these chemical companies needed to either start making something else, like totally different, or hopefully be one of the lucky 30% of companies that are allowed to continue to make pesticides that could also be used for bombs. And, and this specific example had impacts on agriculture and thus obviously broader economic implications. And adding to this, uh, most companies actually decided to switch to making something else entirely, like uh, heavy steel companies who maybe used to create armor plates or engines or something like that. Now they have to switch over to creating other consumer goods, things like, like locks or typewriters or some shit, right? And the, the problem with that is that there's not enough demand in post-war Germany for that kind of shit. It's just not useful, right? And there's not enough, like, external, you know, demand to, to export that kind of goods. And even if there was, there's a lot of these, like, imposed restrictions on export on exports in Germany anyway. And everyone thinks Germany's a pariah state, so nobody wants to buy anything from them anyway. So you take all the, that shit together, there's not enough demand you know, and it has this huge impact on the economy that, you know, that a lot of these companies just end up shutting down and laying off workers. And you can imagine the domino effect that happens from there. 
And, and in what, what it did show is that it showed that the German industry was like way too sensitive to just regular consumer market fluctuations. And it was entirely too dependent on the war industry. Like, so let me, so, so let me dependent. ask you, so with thesis, how did these German companies find loopholes to continue their operations when, um, like how exactly did they do that? Well, primarily uh, for these companies, the the biggest play was just straight up move, right? Move your production facilities to neutral countries. Um, one com- company in particular, Rheinmetall, uh, like a steel manufacturer, they moved uh, to the Netherlands in 1919 with the help of a Dutch company. And they also set up shop in other countries like Switzerland, um, which effectively saved it from the restrictions that they used to have in Germany and allowed them to continue developing their products and, and steel and things like that. But just because they weren't physically in the Netherlands didn't mean that the German economy didn't benefit from it, right? They were all privately held by German people, <laughs> you know, these companies abroad. And, you know, uh, another good example is in the early 1920s, a guy by the name of Hugo Junkers. Uh, he establishes a Swedish subsidiary uh, for building and developing all metal planes near Malmo. Uh, and this subsidiary, uh, he develops this plane called the K-47, which is a very advanced two-seat monoplane. Uh, and they officially designate this plane as a civilian sports plane, right? <laughs> like a sports car plane. And legally, it was a, civ- it was a Swedish civilian plane. Right. So here we have a German that used to be making warplanes. Uh, now they're making sport planes in Sweden and they're allowed to do that. So I imagine that this uh, this K-47, could it be used for like, can you can you put guns on it? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean the, these planes and other planes that that um, that Junkers uh, uh, eventually developed, they were eventually incorporated into the Third Reich Luftwaffe later on during the rearmament. Um, also, fun fact: some of his early work on armored planes is said to be a precursor, or at least an inspiration for the absolutely beastly A-10 Warthog, uh, which is arguably one of the best ground attack planes in history. Um, and so, like a lot of that comes from there, but. I digress. Um, anyway, other companies like Siemens, which you might have heard of, Mauser, they make the guns, Heinck, and uh, some other uh, companies, many other companies, they, they end up doing the same thing as these, as these other companies. And, and they set up their, their shops, their productions in, in foreign nations. Um, and, you know, they use other means to basically boost weapon sales in the Netherlands and in Sweden and in Switzerland. And, you know, Germany greatly benefit from those arrangements, especially in during the rearmament phase, because they're still able to do so many things. Right. And all of this is, by the way, totally fair game. Right. Nothing illegal, nothing breaking any treaty uh, on this. Now, either by design or by some really big oversight, the, the Treaty of Versailles didn't mention that there's anything wrong with a German company just leaving Germany and setting up shop, making money there, sending the majority of it back to its shareholders in Germany, and then getting 
all of this like valuable research and development work done that they wouldn't be able to do in Germany, just in a foreign country instead. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let's make a, let's, uh, so they're making like a, a sports howitzer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's not a gun. No, no, no. This is, this is a very expensive way to make holes in the ground to put seeds for agriculture. <laughs> it's for sport. It's for sport. It's, you know, how it's for ballistic, the ballistic is, range sport. We try to shoot is, targets this is for my, fun. This is my uh, submachine gun for hunting elk. <laughs> 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 um. But yeah, so another huge uh, area that that Germany got around those um, pesky restrictions in the Treaty of Versailles was was like literally in the military itself. So some reminders if you didn't listen to last episode, you know, three hundred k standing army, no general staff, very limited officers, no military academy, uh, no reserve forces, no tanks, no air force, on and on and on. Right? They couldn't have shit. Um, and to establish like compliance with these restrictions, they made a um, uh, an organization called the Inter Allied Military uh, Control Commission, uh, which was set up to like basically monitor. It's like the same shit that we do with like Iran when we're like, "Hey, are you guys making a bomb?" Okay, no, cool. All right. So they had that, but of course, as that goes, as all government agencies goes. You know, by 1927, they basically just stopped doing shit <laughs> in Germany. They just stopped altogether. Uh, I guess maybe they got bored or I don't know. There wasn't enough money. Uh, I'm really actually not sure why they stopped doing what they were supposed to be doing, but they just stopped. And, you know, this is 1927. It was pre-Hitler, right? Or at least pre-rise of Hitler here. And it really, really helped Germany accelerate its secret rearmament efforts. And, you know, it was indeed rearming um there was a significant military and industrial collaboration that took place between germany and the soviet union at this time and the collaboration was from 1920 to 1933 and and it was set up for a, a number of different reasons but primarily among which you know both nations were considered to be like international outcasts after world war one right we got the the, the losers of World War One, the the old German Reich, and we also got the the stupid commies, right? Nobody likes them. So you and know, the, you and the Germans and the Germans arguably put the the Bolsheviks and well, with their support, mm -hmm. the Germans, you know, supported the Bolsheviks as a as a way to 
cause disarray in the Russian Empire, to undermine, exactly. the, subvert the Russian Empire. But um, I think it's important. It's an important point. So this is so this rearmament takes is taking place before Hitler, way before, as early as 1920, right? And and you know so they're working with the Soviets, and and again they're both pariah states. They also, and this is important, and maybe we'll talk about this in future episodes, they shared a mutual concern over Poland uh, and, you know, they faced similar challenges under, you know, this post-war interwar period. It was basically an economic match made in hell. Germany would provide capital and technical expertise and military training, while the Soviets would offer secret training bases and factory sites for the production of armaments. And this partnership was formed, uh, formally initiated with a treaty that the Weimar Republic set up with the Soviet Union uh, called the Treaty of Rapallo on April 16th, 1922, during the Genoa Conference. And there, the Soviet Union and Weimar Republic signed you know, this agreement, which basically was a political recognition of Soviet Russia by Germany, right? And it established these diplomatic relationships between the two of them, and it also massively expanded their economic cooperation, which was huge win for the Weimar Republic in, on the geopolitical stage, right? This is like the, one of the first, uh, uh, you know, first glow-ups of the interwar period here. And, you know, one of the many advancements, um, I should say, this was one of the many advancements that the, the, the Weimar Republic uh, had in its effort to make, basically make itself not a pariah state anymore, and so this this partnership was later expanded by the uh, after the occupation of the Ruhr, which I talked about a little while ago, when the French uh, and Belgian troops came into uh, 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 Western Germany uh, in 1923, and and this prompted kind of a, a wave of negotiations and initiatives between the Germans and the Soviets. The Germans, in particular, were afraid of a potential Polish incursion into East Prussia, which, if you remember from our border uh, conversation. It's like this little enclave that's not actually attached to Germany anymore, kind of hanging out near Poland. And they thought, hey, you know, we're afraid that the Polish are going to act just like the French did and go ahead and occupy, you know, uh, East Prussia. And this led to an increase in private German investment in the Soviet arms industry, as well as creating much stronger ties with the Soviet Union, who basically had the same, you know, worries. They were like, oh shit, these Poles, they're going to they're going to come do some shit. Probably and at this time, the pol- the Poles are highly, you know, there's factions. I'm not going to say all of Poland, but there's certainly factions in Poland at this time that are highly militant. Right. And highly, you know, there's factions that are highly anti-German and there's other factions that are highly anti-Russian. Right. Um, or anti-Soviet but, for that matter. Yeah. Anti-Soviet. But I mean, that kind of stems from their hatred i mean i mean this or this is before they're you know they're they're obviously conquered by the soviet union and you know they're foisted with a communist government but this is you know this kind of stems back from from just being annexed um or it, polish history is the next episode we're gonna we're gonna tackle this question the, the polish question um but poland's a complicated story because yep. Poland is it's it's pretty hard to understand what Poland is at this time. Now it's easy to understand what Poland is. Poland is 
you know, a country with 97% of the population speaking Polish and being Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. Um, Back then, people weren't sure what Poland was because the former state was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was a multicultural state between a lot of different ethnicities, including Poles and Lithuanians and Ruthians and Jews. And, and, you know, there's a lot of different groups. And I guess the struggle at this point for, for Poland is what is our... What is the state? Is it the, you know, the multicultural legacy of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, or is it, you know, the ethnic identity of being a Polish-speaking Roman Catholic? So, um, it's um, it's a very it's a very complicated place, and and, and, right. and what and what is partitioned and where the poles are spread out? They're spread out across three different countries. Mm-hmm. You know, they're spread out against before World War One. They were spread out against, you know, across three different empires. Um, you know, being the Russian, the Habsburgs, and the Germans, but um, there's a lot of different nationalist schools of thought. So both countries, honestly, had their reasons to be very, very uh, hostile towards Polish Polish nationalisms right. and, po- and and threats to this new state that you know was was had some real loons, <laughs> some real loonies in it, for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think after this, the, the first major, like, German and Soviet military collaboration, you know, gets set up. And, and it's the establishment of a flight school in Lipetsk in 1925. Um, again, remember, Germany can't have a Luftwaffe. They can't have an air force. No planes. No, no warplanes. But this wasn't a German, you know, air force. This was a school. That was built by the Soviets and was officially Soviet. The, the Soviets had no restrictions on doing this post-war. So what happens is that this gets financed privately by Germans, and and they use it as an opportunity to train these hand-picked German personnel and send them to go learn how to fly planes and shit. So what Germany would do is they would pick some bright young soldiers in their you know very small army. And they would discharge them for a, a variety of different reasons, right? They would say, hey, you, you, you're you now discharged from the army, which was technically against the rules. Like, I think the, the rule in, in it was if you if you serve in the army, you had to serve for 20 years before you can be discharged. But they would just find random reasons to discharge them, right? Like, oh, he's got fucking PTSD or some shit like that, you know? He can't serve. So they discharge him. And then they send him off to, to Russia to go train at that school. And then when they were done training at that school, learning how to be a, a, a pilot, they would come back to Germany and then somehow they would magically re-enlist in the army. And that was somehow okay, like legally, like, I don't know, I guess, I guess German lawyers figured out that that was okay somehow. Um, and they used this as an opportunity to, to, to train up like a bunch of really great airmen Germany also used some tricks in Germany, like they used civilian institutions like the Lufthansa, which is, you know, as you probably know, the the German airline, uh, commercial airline, and also the commercial flying schools to further develop different aircraft types. And also, um, you know, they would partner like companies with like the, the Junkers company that we talked about who were set up abroad to do that. And by 1933, now we're in Hitler land, right? Germany has already 500 trained airmen right like very well trained airmen and the experience that these men gained 
provided a core of experts and trainers that would eventually be used to train new airmen in the Luftwaffe in Germany. So there you go. They've got an Air Force. <laughs> Just by cheating. And then this is not, this is also, um, this, this isn't, this isn't just air men. This is, this is also like tank development. Yeah. Huge, huge on the tanks as well. Um, big partnership with the Soviet Union in that front. Um, they, they did est- establish a, a tank school near Kazan in 1927. Uh, and here, uh, they had various types of combat vehicles that they were testing and developing. Um, they were figuring out training methods tactics you know uh and and they were they were figuring this out both at the platoon and the company level so like not just like a couple of dudes running around with a tank like giant fielding giant armies of tanks <laughs> um and this this part's kind of funny germany initially supplied the school with two tanks and i'm using tanks with air quotes here and you can't see it but they got away with it by calling them tractors <laughs> They're, oh, no, no, this is not a tank. This is a tractor. This is an agricultural tractor. We're giving this to the Soviet Union to help with their agriculture. And we're going to train them on how to use this special tractor. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah. I, I see no tank here. You're looking at a tractor. This is for farming. <laughs> um, oh, no, this is for farming. <laughs> this, there's this famine that we they need of attractors <laughs> and and pretty much from then on like all further development of tanks and any trainings like they would just refer to them as tractors and tractor training and stuff like that to keep up with the secrecy which looking backwards like i don't know how the allies didn't catch wind it's like why the fuck are you sending so many tractors to the like why are you why do you care so much about tractors um i don't know hindsight is 2020 though um so by 1930, the Soviets had supplied the school with uh, 30 tanks. So they had 30 tanks to work with in this school, and they allowed for way more in-depth training and practice. And just like the flight schools, uh, the tank academy placed a huge emphasis on training personnel uh, who would, in the future, serve as future tank trainers, right? So they'd get these these guys really, really well trained, and the idea was that, you know, they'd have this, like, elite force of, of really good uh, tank people. And by the early 1930s, Germany's small group of, of armor specialists was likely as well-trained as any anyone else in the world. Uh, and many of these people became Germany's leading armored warfare instructors in the following years. So, you know, the basic German military playbook here, as it relates to the Treaty of Versailles, was, you know, we're going to build up this army of uh, uh, what was called a, quote, leader army, Right. So since they were not allowed to have generals or general staff or, or military academies, they would basically train up a bunch of uh, non-commissioned officers or NCOs, so lower ranking people, and they would train them as if they were generals. Right. So to to basically have the same skill set as higher ranking officers, because there was no rule against doing that. Right. Like if you wanted to train some random private on how to be a general, cool, but he can't all the only restriction was he can't have the title of general. That was it. So it was there were there were all officers and everything but name. And what this ended up creating was a high number of NCOs, so like low level officers serving in the military. Like they had almost like a disproportionately high number of almost officers. <laughs> um 
And the idea was if they ever needed to go to war, they could basically just immediately promote all of these NCOs. So now they're all higher ranks and they can immediately start training other people. And all they need to do is just enlist a bunch of grunts underneath them, which to that point is exactly what happened once Hitler came to power and reinstated conscription. So I'm going to wrap up my rant on the Treaty of Versailles. So basically, so basically <laughs> they trained a bunch of sergeants that they promoted to lieutenants and majors and colonels. And generals and all that stuff, right? They just like whatever the top allowed rank was based on the Treaty of Versailles was, that's the rank that you got. But in terms of your skill set, you were well beyond that skill set. So like, like you know, I guess in the U.S. equivalent, if you, if you took a bunch of me- if all the generals were like master sergeants or something. Mm-hmm. Or even lower than that. And, Very and interesting. Then, yep. So they just had like a fucking, they, they can only have 300K people. So they were like, all right, all 300K of them are going to be officers, basically, in, in skill set, at least, you know. Which so is kind of a, a fantastic this is, this idea. Is, this is, yeah, this is, so this is setting the foundation of, you know, the the military machine that they're able to to uh, create. Right. I don't know I why mean, I'm the, thinking so hard for another word for create, but they're, yeah. they're able to, to facilitate in the late 1930s. Right. I mean, all the Treaty of Versailles said is you can't have too many people and they can't be officers. That's it. They didn't say anything about they can't be skilled, <laughs> you know? So, you know, they, they found a clever way around it. And it's, I mean, to their credit, shit. I mean, it sucks that Hitler took advantage of that. But, I mean, this was happening well before Hitler even got there. They were doing this well before that. And, you know, to, to, to wrap on, on, on my rant on the Treaty of Versailles, like, was it really that bad? The answer is definitively yes, it was. But I think it was mostly bad because it impacted regular people in really in really bad ways, and because it was, and also because it was dictated to the Germans rather than this being a negotiation. Like tr- typically with these treaties, and it really shouldn't even be called a treaty; it should be called a diktat, right? You get both parties to the table, and then you agree on some negotiation. This was just created by the Allies, and they said, "Here's your document, sign it," right? And that's what happened. And it was a piece of shit for a lot of people. Um, and, but, but, but I will argue that once hyperinflation gets stopped, many of these industries and companies start thriving in spite of the treaty and, and created huge growth for many, but not all German people. And it certainly had it like this treaty had no impact on limiting, on limiting Germany's ability to rearm itself. Like, like zero, they, they figured out the easiest way to, to fit, you know, get around that part. So I think the, the idea that the Treaty of Versailles was maybe not that bad, you can also just apply that to the to the idea that the Weimar Republic was bad. I don't think it was that bad. Well, um, I guess to in, in terms of what the Treaty of Versailles does, though, it does create that that resentment. I mean, because I mean, you resent paying reparations to somebody, right? I think we I think we got to bounce around a little bit and talk about the Weimar Republic because the the thing about Germans and I'll say this again at the end of it is they don't care about 
who's running the government. What they care about is what works for them. And there are distinct and memorable times in the Weimar Republic where people mostly weren't giving a shit about the the guilt of war. They were doing just fine. Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting. And I don't know, this is just like some random story. And I don't know if this is even relevant to the topic, but I've told this story before. When I was in Germany, I was in Berlin and I was in a coffee, I was on a walking tour about the Third Reich. And there was, you know, during these long walking tours, there's usually a break in a restaurant. And there's this British, my, my guy, my guide is like a British loudmouth. He's a great, well, he's, he was a great guide, but he's just like, yell, talking so loud. He's like, and this is how this country turned into fascism. The average person, they were Hitler's shadow. This is how, you know, just, you know, screaming. Mm-hmm. And in the same cafe, there's a bunch of German people just like working, drinking their coffee. And they're so immune to it. <laughs> like, I'm think, I'm just thinking, I'm like, man. This kind of has to suck a little bit, right? Like <laughs> yeah. every single day, you're, you're, you know, you get your coffee, you see some, you know, this this loudmouth British guy just screaming about how your grandfather <laughs> was the Hitler's shadow, right? Yeah, um, and you know, they just didn't seem to mind. Well, I mean, that's that's like, kind yeah, of that's kind of the this. point, right? Because because that person that's sitting in that coffee shop is doing just fine, right? They're able to sit down and afford some coffee. So they don't give a shit, right? I mean, maybe they care a little bit, but for the most part, like their day-to-day lives isn't really impacted by whether or not they feel guilty about some shit that happened in the past. And and that's yeah. and that's kind of what I want to point out about the Weimar Republic. Yes, it's true that the Treaty of Versailles did assign guilt and blame to the to the Germans, and that's unprecedented. And it and it certainly did have an impact on players like Hitler, you know, who, who would riff on this. However, there's a whole, there's a whole set of years, good, really good years where that's, that was the most irrelevant argument to make. It was not even, not even part of the national discourse. So, so how, how about, how about the discourse that they surrendered under the, under Wilson's 14 points? Again. And and then they were kind of, that, that is that kind of ideas are own, those kind of ideas in the interwar period are only really relevant in the very beginning of the interwar period when the Weimar Republic was getting set up and at the very end of the the interwar period when the when the um the Nazis came to power but everything in between not not really relevant okay well so far what you're saying i think it does go against the conventional wisdom and I I largely agree with you, based for for most of what you're saying, because my I, I do think the Treaty of Versailles did obviously lead to the ground up for the war, and it was a it was a piece of the puzzle. But you know, if I was going to say the major catalyst, and we don't need to go into this topic right now, because I think we can it's probably too big of a topic just to discuss in passing, but. Um, is more of a reaction to kind of the revolutionary Bolshevism, 
that's taking place. Yeah, that's a whole in communist movements. <laughs> that's a that's, that's a, a whole other can't. <laughs> yeah, and and it's true. I mean, it played a really big part, but but yes, that that does have something to do with it. But what I would like to talk about is like this idea because I hear this a lot. Um, you know, I think you even said so much. You know, when you read about the Weimar Republic and some of these like, you know, right wing areas. You know, they, they just talk about like, oh, this is the worst example of how to government the Weimar Republic. This is like, like this is what Biden well, wants well, to make America, <laughs> you know, like well, that's <laughs> what they typically. So a lot of really, you know, I'm not even going to say like not your national review or mm-hmm. standard type of conservative Republican blogs or publications. I, I'm, I'm talking about more so like very dis- dissident, dis- more very hard right what they'll what they'll say about the Weimar Republic is that it was rampant with social degeneracy, like I said earlier, mm-hmm. where, you know, there was like all this kind of weird postmodern type stuff that was like destroying the fabric of, of Christian society and, and um it, it it was it was mainly, you know, they'll they'll say that, you know, the Jews were the ones that were doing this as a that's a method right. and of that, revenge and that against, literally just sounds Christian German society. Literally just sounds like the Nazi Party. We'll talk about that in a second, but let's 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 just talk about what is the what was the Weimar Republic? How did that get set up? What did it look like? And like, what did it go through? And and let's answer some of the ideas of like how how does this national guilt thing? How does the Treaty of Versailles restrictions? How did that all play out in the actual okay. Weimar well, Republic? Let's start. So let's start with in the in November of 1918 when when Germany's basically trying to get out of the war and and they throw out their Kaiser, and yep. um, there's a democratic government under the the liberal Prince Max von Biden. Is it Baden or Biden? I forget. I don't. Baden. Baden. Biden. Biden. <laughs> Brandon. <laughs> Brandon. <laughs> Prince Max von Brandon. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this guy is basically there to get a favorable deal outside of the war, right? Right. But but then there's a mutiny and, and it's like some Navy soldiers refuse to engage, you know, in a doomed battle. And and this sparks an uprising all throughout Germany. And, and yeah, there's about there's about twelve different cities that that there's there's either mutinous soldiers running the place or there's revolutionary movements or socialists running the place. Right, and there's and there's no like distinct leaders that are organizing these uprisings in general. Right, it's like all disparate but like loosely related, and and it culminated with all of these crowds joining forces with the army and causing the ruling powers, including Kaiser Wilhelm and and dark Brandon <laughs> to basically abdicate and, and, and leave, leave the country. And at the end of, yeah. w- once the dust settles here, the social Democrats, they're, they're the party with the most Reichstags uh, delegates at the time they take control. Um, so this guy, Friedrich uh, Ebert, uh, he was the leader of the social Democrats. He basically struggled to maintain order uh, in the, in like all of the confusion following the end of the war and the monarchies fall, and you start seeing a lot of these radical groups and other political parties managing to seize control of mainly like city halls and state governments all across the country, right? Nothing on a national level, but definitely like like local stuff. And this is where you're going to start hearing again a lot of this like gut 
knee-jerk reaction against the Treaty of Versailles, against this like imposition of national guilt, you know, against all you're going to hear a lot of that shit in this immediate period. But ultimately, they have an election, right? A national election, and that was in January 1919 to form a national assembly. And the Social Democratic Party ends up winning with the majority of the votes. So all of that, you know, fringe stuff kind of falls to the wayside, at least temporarily. Um, and then this assembly, basically, it, you know, it's it's a parliamentary style. So it, 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 it represents a wide range of beliefs, right? They all pack up their shit and go to Weimar to avoid all the Berlin drama. And they draft a new constitution, and this creates what we would now call the Weimar Republic, though it wasn't known as that at the time. Um, power was divided just like any other uh, parliamentary style uh, government. So three government branches, all of them selected by the people. And basically, the more votes a party receives, the more seats that they'll get at the Reichstag, which is their parliament. Um, the party officials, not the voters, though, decide who is the actual like representatives. Um, that get delegated. And then, you know, you get a president that's selected by the public, and then that president appoints a chancellor. This is like the same thing as a prime minister, basically. And the chancellor runs the daily operations of the government. Of course, there's also a judicial branch, but they're not really important in this particular uh, uh, explanation. So, but yeah, those are your three branches. Uh, so because what's important here is that because the, no single party had a majority in the Reichstag, multiple different parties have to form coalitions. And, you know, that's obviously very tenuous, right? Any dis- disagreements that the parties have could break these coalitions and trigger new elections. And trust me, there was a lot of disagreements. So between 1919 and 1933, there were 20 different legislators, <laughs> like 20 different governments in that in that short period of time. So hugely debatable. Um, but one thing that was pretty good that came out of this is the Weimar Constitution. Uh, and that was adopted August 11th, 1919. And it basically outlined the rights and the obligations uh, of, you know, its citizens. Now, I want you to keep in mind here, this is Germany. Germany didn't have like a long history of democracy. It was like kingdoms and empires and shit like that before this. So the the idea that they put together a constitution was by itself a big deal. You know, this isn't France. This is Germany. And so I want to read a few, uh, a, a selection, if you will, of some of the freedoms that were offered uh, in this uh, thing here. So Article 109, all Germans are equal before the law. Men and women have the same fundamental civil rights and duties public legal privileges or disadvantages of birth or rank are abolished. Fantastic. Everybody's equal. Uh, Article 114, personal liberty is inviolable or cannot be destroyed. Uh, Article 115, the home of every German is his sanctuary and is inviolable. Exceptions are only permitted by the authority of law. Article 117, the secrecy of letters and all postal, telegraph, and telephone communications are inviolable. Exceptions are inadmissible except by national law. 118. Uh, every German has the right within the limits of the general laws to express his opinion freely by word, in writing, in print, and in picture form, or in any other way. Censorship is forbidden. So super, you know, for us, First Amendment here. Um, 
All Germans have the right to assemble peacefully and unarmed without giving notice and without special permission. So they can, they can assemble whenever they want. Um, all Germans have the right to form associations and societies for the purpose not contrary to criminal law. This one kind of backfires a little bit because that's how the Nazis and the, uh, the, the SA gets formed. <laughs> it's technically allowed uh, until they start doing criminal shit. Um, every German has the right to a petition. Uh, all inhabitants of the Reich um, enjoy full religious freedom and freedom of conscience. Their free exercise of religion is guaranteed by the Constitution and is under public protection. And then follows up with 137. There is no state church, so separation of, of religion and and government. Uh, and then finally, uh, the last one that I'll say, uh, the right of private property is guaranteed by the Constitution. Expropriation of property may p- take place only by the due processes of law. So, like, pretty similar to, like, even our own Constitution, really, you know? Um, and this is some groundbreaking shit at the time. And they're promising some stuff that other countries in Europe and, and indeed across the world, you know, with, with much longer democratic histories, just didn't. You know, like, here's an example. And actually, fun fact, I got this one wrong when we were talking about Weimar the last time around. So I looked it up again, <coughs> made sure not to do it again. But they gave women the right to vote in 1919. <laughs> now, if you look at France, on the other hand, you know, France, the bastion of democracy. They didn't actually technically do that until the 40s. So, And look what happened. Hitler. And, and look what happened. <laughs> I'm uh, obviously joking, but, um, but here's the point. The Germans are free, and that's cool, but they're poor as fuck because, you know, hyperinflation. Um, now... I'm not going to get into the hyperinflation thing here today. I think we we already did a really good episode on that. So if you you know want the specific details, you can go back and listen to that one. Um, all I think you need to know for now is that the government keeps printing a shit ton of money to pay for the war effort before the war was over. And then again, later to pay for its reparations and also to prop up the economy. And then before you know it, a loaf of bread cost a trillion marks. <laughs> you know, that's just how it ran. I mean, like, people were carrying their money in wheelbarrows and shit, which is nuts. So, hyperinflation bad. Like, really, really bad. Um, but, but what's important to note is that the entire, admittedly short, history of the Weimar Republic wasn't plagued by hyperinflation. It wasn't hyperinflation from start to finish. In fact... They got most of it under control. And while they did that, they even renegotiated the terms of the Treaty of Versailles and uh, a few times. And generally, they did pretty okay until the crash of 1929 and until Mr. Mustache shows up. So there is that. So there's an important guy to talk about. Um, one of the only names that I'll go over other than like Hitler or some shit like that. Uh, it's Gustav Stresemann. So this guy comes into power August 1923. He becomes the chancellor, and then eventually he leaves that position and, and becomes the foreign secretary of Weimar. And he primarily focuses on stabling the economy and regaining international respect for Germany. Those are like his two like big policy points. And he, you know his idea was that he could do these things and 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 make more support for moderate parties and less support for extremists. Those extremists, of course, included the Bolsheviks, you know, uh, your communists, 
but also you're fascists, you're, you're uh, Nazis. And he thought that all we need to do is fix Germany and then people won't give a shit about those radical ideas. And he was right. So Stresemann's first strategy was to end hyperinflation. One of the things that he did here, and I'm really, really making this very simple. Uh, so do go and listen to the hyperinflation thing. Um, but he establishes a new currency called the Rentenmark by a state-owned bank called the Rentenbank. That currency was backed by German industrial and agricultural assets instead of fucking nothing, which is what the old marks were based on. And the supply was very strictly limited, which means that the money had actual real value and this really curbed hyperinflation like relatively quickly. The rent mark later gets renamed the Reichsmark and the control was given over to the uh, a newly independent Reichsbank, uh, which greatly restored trust in German money. And before you know it, you know, people's money actually meant something again, and they were able to ditch the wheelbarrow wallets that they had for a while. Like, I cannot underscore how big a deal this was. Yes, hyperinflation was fucking terrible for several years, but, you know, by the mid-20s, it's kind of already fallen off, you know? So Hitler didn't come in and solve hyperinflation? No. This shit, I mean, (laughs) I wouldn't say that it was solved, but it was definitely like not nearly as big a problem as it used to be, right? Yeah. And so the first few years of the Republic was obviously extremely rough for all of the reasons that I just described. And and even today when you read about the Weimar Republic, inflation is almost always the number one topic. But but if you look critically at the entire short Weimar history, there was some really sound decision-making, particularly by Stresemann and some other folks uh, that were, you know, in power, and they were actually able to pull out of it and made honestly one of the most amazing financial comebacks in history over just a few short years. So later on in 1924, Stresemann agrees to the Dawes plan, which I'm not going to go into great detail about, but what's important about it is that it involved reducing reparations and, you know, it also opened up the ability for large loans from U.S. banks, so foreign investment you can think whatever you want about it, but this along with, you know, ending the passive resistance that you know, there was like strikes, general strikes happening in Germany because of the French occupation of the Ruhr. So he was able to end that and get reparations reduced and get some extra cash infusions from U.S. banks. All of that put together helped the German economy recover and it benefited, importantly, workers and the middle class. I'm not going to say it It was a miracle that fixed everybody's problems. There were still a lot of problems that were going on. But if you look at it relative to the, per- the immediate period, immediate couple of years before that, when people were literally like killing themselves because there wasn't enough food, this is pretty fucking good. Now we have stable money, foreign investments, and jobs. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
we'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Admittedly, not everybody was a fan of what Stresemann was doing. Uh, extremists like the communists and the fledgling Nazi party were opposed to the Dawes plan and later the Young plan of 1929. And that further, you know, that, that one also reduced the, the reparations debt. And they were mostly pissed off. A lot of these groups, they were mostly pissed off because they made Germany dependent on American loans, which is a fair point, but also more broadly because Germany had to pay any reparations at all. Like most of these uh, uh, extremist parties on, on the left and right, just they were like, uh, we shouldn't have to pay anything. And I think that's a pretty fair argument for, you know, in the context of, you know, the 1920s in Germany, you know, like there, it's a fair argument against those plans, right? You might be like, hey, I don't want to do this plan because I don't think we ought to give any money to anyone, right? But I think the fact that the economy was soaring relative to the hyperinflation years, German people largely ignored the fringe. They didn't give a shit. They looked at the Bolsheviks and, and the Nazis and they were like, mm, this Stresemann guy's doing a pretty good job. So don't really know why you're so upset. And people were mostly happy, right? I'm going to say that loosely because there was a lot of people that were still in abject poverty, but just keep it all relative here, right? Um, salaries were way up. Actually, in certain cases, it was they were too high, which was weird. Um, social safety nets were established and put in place. You can think whatever you want about that, but it was well, helpful well, social, for people who were poor as fuck, you know? Well, social safety nets had been in German history for a long time. It, right. it precedes it precedes the German the German Empire. Like Bismarck's Prussia had had a social welfare system in place and social safety nets. In right, place. but during the hyperinflation period, there was no social safety net. Literally, everything was was gone. And now suddenly we're building this back up, right? Yeah. And and most people could mostly afford to put food on their table. So in relative terms, it was pretty good times. Now, it's it's important for me to, to point out that there was rampant income inequality. Uh, most of the GNP or the gross national product of the Weimar Republic went to corporations and entities that were profiting off of the random loopholes that they figured out um, to get around the, the Treaty of Versailles. And that part was indeed very bad. Uh, and also a lot of the, the wealth was concentrated in, in, in the, you know, urban areas. So a lot of the rural people were still suffering. Um, but I mean, in relative terms, so much better, like so, so much better. And, and in an undeniable way, the culture was thriving 
Although, you know, maybe if you ask hard right wing people here today, they would disagree with me, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I get to talk. (laughs) Uh, Things like film, music, literature, architecture, dance, I mean, you name it, it was all happening in the Republic. And, And more importantly, even if you don't like the culture that came out of it, what was important about the culture. So, so it wasn't all just porn? <laughs> no, but there was a lot of porn. That that did, that was a thing. <laughs> um, but even if you don't like the culture, one thing that you can appreciate about the culture's impact, like the thriving culture's impact on the Weimar Republic was that these were all of the modern trappings that, you know, I mean, frankly, in the, in the these are the roaring 20s everywhere, right? A lot of places, including the United States, are having a really great time. Um, and these modern trappings are what keeps the masses distracted, right? So nobody gives a shit in the 20s, in the late 20s, about the fact that the Treaty of Versailles says that you are the the reason, you're the 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 bad guy. They don't care. They've got cool fucking porn to look at now and they can eat. They honestly do. They don't care. The people who do care are the French people, right? The people who who don't like what's going on, who think that this is a degeneracy culture, who think that, you know, it's, it's bad to uh, rely on American bailouts or American uh, uh, loans. The people who think that, you know, uh, just signing the treaty of Versailles is treason, Right. Those people are still mad, but they represent such a tiny little proportion of of the actual public. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about that. Not in this time. And then, you know, adding to this, Stresemann was making Germany great again, like to borrow a phrase here, at least on the world stage. Um, Treaties like the Locarno Pact and the Kellogg-Briand Pact um, helped establish Germany as like a for realsies world player. Also, Germany was admitted into the League of Nations for what it's worth. Um, you know, that really didn't pan out very well, but uh, they got admitted into a club, right, before they were a pariah state. So Germany was being respected again, and and this boosted support for moderate parties and moderate policies in the Weimar government. So it was kind of like a positive feedback loop here. Stresemann's efforts to, you know, you know, they basically led to a reduction in extremist reports and and an increase in moderate party support, and it strengthened the government. Um, but but not long after, Germany gets hit back to back. So Stresemann dies suddenly in October of 1929, and not long after, the Wall Street crash of 1929 happens, and this is the onset of a Great Depression. And this undid pretty much all of the stabilization that was built up in the years that came uh, that came before that. But coming back to my original question on this topic, was Weimar that bad? And it honestly just depends on how you look at it. So from my perspective, like I can totally see how it got off to a rough start. Pretty much every country except for the United States was having a rough time economically after the war. And, and that's part of the reason why reparations were set so high against Germany. Um, the causes of hyperinflation were already in place before the Republic even started. And yes, it did a shit job at managing it in the first like four, five years. And and some of the things that they that they did made it worse. But people like Stresemann and other leaders, you know, in that 23, 24, 25 area, they started restructuring um, 
their debts, restructuring the terms of their treaties, making better economic policies, which basically got the country back on right on the right track. And 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 this you can add to the almost universally accepted freedoms that were offered by the constitution of this Weimar Republic and 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 then all of the great contributions to the arts that Weimar, you know, made. It just makes me feel like it wasn't so bad. In fact, I'd argue that you know, Weimar Republic's rebound in the 20s was actually a great example of how to government. Of course, to kind of backpedal a little bit, the failure here was its dependence on U.S. investments. But, I mean, could you blame them? I mean, nobody could have predicted the stock market crash of 1929. And honestly, taking those investments at the time was probably still the best option for the Republic, even looking back because they were able to use that money to, to turn their economy around and, and reinvest in smart ways. Even if it was only for a couple of years, the Republic was pretty good by many, many accounts. So I'm, I'm listening to your argument about how, you know, Weimar gets a bad rap, but still there's that elephant in the, in the room that why did, if it was so great, how did national socialists end up taking up taking up power? Yeah. I mean, you're kind of right on that. But again, more context. So where we left left off was Stresemann, the guy who basically made all the miracles happen in, in Weimar, dies. And then a couple of weeks later, the stock market crashes. And that, by the way, sends the whole world, including Germany, uh, into a depression. So it's it's not unique anywhere. It's everywhere. Um, and so all of those gains that these moderate parties in, in the Weimar Republic were making, uh, which made all of the extremist parties, including the Nazi parties, like made all of their re- arguments irrelevant, all that shit gets erased. Remember, this is a parliamentary government. So any little disagreement in the coalition, and suddenly there's a new election, and importantly, a new opportunity for smaller parties to gain power. And the Great Depression was like the ultimate catalyst for like part like coalition disagreements. Everybody was freaking out, and Stresemann's dead, and he can't come and save everyone again. People lost their jobs, people lost their savings, some people lost their lives. So the atmosphere was ripe for the Nazi Party to gain power. And and what they were offering at the time was what a lot of Germans wanted to hear. So we're treading into some dangerous waters here, Henry. <laughs> Let's take a look at the Nazi Party platform and try not to get into trouble. <laughs> uh, obligatory disclaimer, Nazis are bad, and I very strongly disavow them. But for a minute... Yeah, just you, you really needed to clear that up. <laughs> yeah. For a minute, let's, let's, uh, let's try to think like a German in 1929 while we read through these. Just for a minute. Okay, let's get started. You ready? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Start with the, um, you know, we demand the unification of all Germans in a greater Germany on the basis of the right of national self-determination. Yep, that's one of them. So honestly, that one's not so bad at face value, just face value, right? In the context of the day, they lost territory. They have citizens. 
in diasporas in other countries which were being discriminated against in these newly formed countries. That makes sense to me, right? They want to, they want Germans to be Germany again. I get it. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I get it. Then there's, we demand equality of rights for the German people in its dealings with other nations and the revocation of the peace treaty of Versailles. Okay, so that one's not so bad either. At least it's not an unfair demand. Um, but this was already getting better under Stresemann, if we remember, right? So they already had equality. They, yeah, they might still have had the peace treaty, but... It was doing pretty good. And it wasn't until he died and the markets crashed that people actually started paying attention to this argument, you know, like coming back to how bad the Treaty of Versailles is. I've got a few more decent ones. Why don't you read off the, the next two? All citizens shall have equal rights and duties. In view of the enormous sacrifices of life and property demanded by a nation by any war, personal enrichment from war must be regarded as a crime against the nation. We demand, therefore, the ruthless confiscation of all war profits. So that's interesting. Yeah. If I told you that this was like the platform for some like libertarian, I think you'd probably believe me. <laughs> Very yeah. or some or some commie. Yep. We got some more. Why don't you read these next two? We demand profit sharing in large industrial enterprises. We demand the extensive development of insurance for old age. So social services, right? Now they're starting to sound like Democrats, right? <laughs> See, now citizens may only live in Germany as guests and must be subject to laws for aliens. The right to vote on the state's government and legislation shall be enjoyed by the citizens of the state alone. We demand, therefore, that all official appointments of whatever kind, whether in the Reich, in the states, or in the smaller localities, shall be held by none but, by none but citizens. Okay. Doesn't that sound like Republican talking points here? No. Republicans don't sound like that. That sounds like my talking points. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a, that is a conservative idea, right? Uh, we don't want, uh, you know, foreign people voting. We don't think that foreign people yeah. should hold office, you know? They're here as guests in the United States, and they should be subject to special laws that are specifically for these guests. That's, that's kind of um. Republican. All right. It gets super racist from here. But, but I just want to point out, like, this first couple of ones that we were— that we're listening to, they honestly don't sound that bad. And, and we're talking about, we just got a new crisis and now suddenly we got this, this, you know, guy that's saying like, Hey, we want to do these things. Let's read some of the racist ones. So just get it over with. <laughs> well, we got to be concerned about the uh, AI things that listen to this thing and, and how they flag shit, um, you know, because they do it without context. So, Okay, so it's, age. it's maybe, 2020. It's 2023. It's the age that we live in. But whatever, <laughs> I'll, I'll just read it. Only members of the nation may be citizen of the state. Only those of German blood, whatever whatever their creed, may be members of the nation. Accordingly, no Jew may be a member of the nation. We demand land and territory colonies to feed our people and to settle our surplus population. We demand that the state shall make its primary duty to provide a livelihood for its citizens. It should prove impossible to feed the entire population. Foreign nationals must be deported from the Reich. 
All non-German immigrant immigration must be prevented. We demand that all non-Germans who entered Germany after November 2nd, 1914 shall be required to leave the Reich Fort with. Yikes. So, I mean, those are all the racist ones, right? The xenophobic ones. We demand freedom for all religious denominations in the state, provided that they do not threaten the existence nor offend the moral feelings of the German race. Okay, that one's the funniest one, in my opinion. It's like the most snowflakey, bigoted shit ever. Like, oh, poor Nazis. The Jewish faith hurt your moral feelings. <laughs> I don't know. Um, in all seriousness, though, take into consideration the mindset of the German population at the time. They lost World War I. They got slapped with heavy restrictions and reparations from the, the Treaty of Versailles. They endured hyperinflation. And then things start looking good, right? They form a democratic government of moderates. They put the lid on inflation. That government deals with you know, the allies to lower the reparations twice. That government deals with other countries and gets in the League of Nations. That government sells its sovereignty to a certain extent to get U.S. foreign debt, but it initially works out really well, uh, and the economy booms. And then finally, everything collapses again. Like, I feel like these people, they don't give a shit about democracy. They don't have a historic tendency towards democracy at this point. What they give a shit about is what works and what helps them put food on the table. And they tried this moderate route, and it worked out quite well for a bit. But ultimately, it landed them, in their opinion, right back where they started at rock bottom. And, and I think what happens here is that they, they trigger this like collective PTSD. And along comes this coked out Austrian guy with a funny mustache. And, you know, he's talking about how he's going to fix all their problems. And he gathers his gang of, you know, radical white teenagers and they, they run out into the streets and they, you know, quote, fight crime. I mean, in reality, they're terrorizing minority groups, but, you know, the optics of it appears like, you know, for these regular Germans, here's a party that gets shit done, you know, like, let's give them a chance. Let's, let's, let's try that out, you know? And, ter and terrorizing minority groups in Central Europe was pretty par for the course at this time. Exactly. And even if their platform was bigoted and xenophobic, you know, for, for the average German person, a lot of what that platform was saying appeals to them in one way or another. You know, the, this is the struggling German in the early 1930s. And and the unfortunate reality is that, you know, this radical platform becomes history's most heinous dictatorship. But I think it's unfair to say that the Weimar Republic caused these conditions. You know, absent, like, the speculations of Wall Street bankers that were thousands of miles away that caused a collapse that nobody could have, you know, foreseen... Honestly, the Weimar Republic might have just continued on growing and the Nazi party would have been stuck on the fringes. However, there's one thing that you can blame the Weimar Republic for, and it's Article 48 of their constitution. And I'll read this one. In the event that public order and security are seriously disturbed or threatened, the Reich president may take the measures necessary for their restoration intervening, if necessary, with the aid of the armed forces. For this purpose, he may temporarily suspend, wholly or in part, 
the basic rights laid down in articles 114, 115, 117, 123, 124, and 153. And if you don't remember those articles, like the numbers of those, it's basically saying that the president can spend all suspend all of those good like freedom, equality, speech, voting, assembly, all that shit can be just wiped off. That, Henry, was Weimar's biggest fuck up. Because without Article 48, it's very likely that the weak coalition that the Nazis established when they gained power, because it was a very weak coalition, that would have fallen apart. And there would have been another vote and a new legislator. Maybe it would have been Bolsheviks after that. I don't know. But they wouldn't have lasted very long. Well, very interesting, very interesting food for thought. I think we should explore this topic at a deeper level, uh, level um, as far as the Weimar Republic, and maybe even look at like some different sources and different point of point of views, because this is a controversial topic, obviously, the Weimar mm-hmm. Republic. Um, the next couple of episodes that we have in the pipeline, at least, are going to be, are going to have to do with essentially nationalism and and kind of ethno-nationalism in Central Europe as a whole, really starting with Poland. Um, Because again, this is not a World War II series, but like a larger discussion revolving different aspects of the origins of World War II. So it's going to grab a lot from different things. Also going to combine some of the Russian Revolution stuff that I've been working on forever into this not a series but um, yeah, I thought this was this was great. I've definitely learned a lot of stuff about the uh, the rearmament of, of uh, Germany today that I did not know that they were <laughs> they were they were uh, calling uh, sports sports planes and tractors. <laughs> yeah, that very was very very inter- very interesting stuff. But you know, I think we need to further explore the zeitgeist. I think is the word that is exactly the the animate Mm -hmm. the animated forces that were going on. Um, that because like the Germans just didn't wake up one day and be like, Oh, they'll let's be evil. (laughs) You know what I mean? No, definitely not. There's something, there's something, something that's very, very hard to articulate. And it's something that's easily simplified. Uh, but with that, I think we should end our show because it is hot. It is all. It is July, excuse me, and I had to turn my AC off. Any right. other words? No, man. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Bro History. If you want to support the show, you can support us on our Patreon channel. And then you could also rate and review the podcast on your Apple device or on your Spotify device. That is the fastest way to support our show. So please do that. If you can rate us rate and review the podcast, number one way to support our show. Any other words, Danny? Nope. Catch y'all later. Peace. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? 
Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.